I remember thinking, well, if I make it to 30, I'm going to be stoked. I made it to 30. Now I'm looking to 40 and I'm like, all right, let's go to 40. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two. This is Shauna. And this is Rosalina. And we're your hosts for Too Young for This Shit podcast. This podcast is not just about boobs, but a journey with cancer. We are young millennials open about giving you our raw and unfiltered look into our lives. We are in no way medical professionals, nor are we offering medical advice. Any medical references are cited directly from public websites or from our personal diagnosis. Some topics and stories may be triggering to those who are fighting, have fought, or have loved someone with cancer. Hi, everyone. This is Rosalina. And this is Shauna. Welcome back to the Too Young for the Ship podcast. Our guest today is Justine, a social psychologist, college professor, and a certified yoga teacher. She runs an Instagram account called Yoga with Jess, where she shares about her survivorship and holds weekly meditation for the breast cancer community. Hi, Justine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, I am so excited to just like dive into your journey. But before we do that, can you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself, just not cancer-related, you know, like your age, career, your interests, hobbies? Yeah. So I'm originally from Connecticut, but I'm currently living in Rhode Island. I've been in Rhode Island for over a decade now, um, and I'm 33 and a psychology professor, as you noted. Uh, and so I've been doing that for over five years now after I got my PhD in psychology. And interest in hobbies, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the yoga meditation stuff later, but um, I also love to cook. So I like trying different recipes, especially after cancer. Like I really got into just trying new and different ways of enjoying like nutrition. Uh, so like, like different vegan dishes and, and that, and that to be said, I don't solely eat vegan. I, you know, I'm a person that feels really strongly about moderation is key for me. Uh, and so, yeah, um, hiking, we love to hike with our dog. We have a dog named Maddie and we have two ferrets. Their names are May and Watts and they're really curious and silly. <laughs> <laughs> When I, sorry, short story. When I was a kid, I had a friend who had a ferret and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> They're really sweet. Yeah, they are. They really are. My sister wanted one so bad, but I think like in New York, they're illegal. You can't have them as pets in New York. Yeah, in certain states they're illegal or they're like really regulated because they're exotics. Yeah. So it's really weird, yeah. <laughs> so Justine, let's just get into your cancer diagnosis. At 23 years old, you were diagnosed with breast cancer, and that was 10 years ago. Um, but before we get into your cancer story, you know, at that age, what did you know about breast cancer? Oh, God, nothing. <laughs> Literally, I mean, when I say nothing, I had no family history. You know, I didn't know anyone. You know, I, I heard, you know, a friend's aunt or, you know, grandpa or I mean, grandma like passed away or something right from cancer, but it was women in their sixties and seventies, not people my age and nothing like that. So I had no idea about really any of it. The only stories I knew were of people who had passed. And those were like people who were 
very tangentially like associated, I was associated with. So really no, nothing. And that's so important to say because this is just like a judgment-free zone. Like I did not, I didn't know much about breast cancer either. It wasn't talked about in school and um, just people around me. And like you mentioned, you know, (laughs) the only time you heard about breast cancer is that it happens to women over 40. Unfortunately, it can happen to anyone. Yeah. Now jumping into your cancer journey, take us through the beginning, starting with how you found your lump. Yeah. So I was, like I said, 23. I just finished my first year of grad school. Uh, So I was like trying to use the summer to like get ahead on my master's thesis proposal and try to even graduate early. I was, you know, I was ahead of the game and I kind of found my lump by chance in the shower. So just to be very clear and open, you know, I wasn't doing self exams because that wasn't normalized. That wasn't a thing that was like, hey, you should be doing this and, you know, feel it on the first and all those things were just not conversations had in any sort of space. Right. To do it monthly. Yeah. My breast exam happened when I went to my like annual gynecology appointment. And like that was when you had your breast exam done. Exactly. And that was it. And so, you know, I wasn't super concerned. I, you know, the first thing I did, 23, called my mom. Hey, mom, I felt this lump. What do I do? And she's like, well, call your gynecologist. And she was really, she's the one who encouraged me to do that. And she wasn't worried either. I mean, but she's like, you know, you don't know. Let's just check it out. And we actually had a family trip to Vegas scheduled the next week. And so I ended up scheduling that appointment for like two weeks after that trip or something, because that was just the way the timing was going to work out. And I wasn't really stressing about it. I went on that trip. There's pictures of me. Like I look back at those pictures. I'm smiling. Little did I know I had cancer in me, which is wild to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got back. I had the appointment with my gynecologist and he wasn't really concerned either. He said, you know, I think this is like a benign fibroedema. You're young. You don't have a family history. You shouldn't really be concerned. And I went back, you know, after I was diagnosed and I actually thanked him because I went and he's like, you know what? Let's send you for an ultrasound just in case. Mm -hmm. Doesn't hurt to get it looked at. And got the ultrasound. I remember sitting there and, you know, laying there. My mom went with me because this was pre-COVID time. So she was able to do that. And because I was really nervous, of course. Yeah. And I remember, I think it was either Shauna or Rosalina. I can't remember which one of you had talked about this in your episode, but the silence of the technician. <laughs> I remember oh, that. Yeah, that was they, me. They yeah. were just so silent. <laughs> okay. And just the clicking. And there was so many yeah. clicky, like clicks that they were doing to measure. And yeah. yes. I remember that. That was freaking me out hard. Yeah. Complete silence and you know, for me, it was like, you know, there was the, the spot where my lump was, but then there was the, it lit up with the calcification. So I had all these calcifications in my breast, which is also associated with the breast cancer. And she was silent. She walked up there and said, I'm going to go get the doctor. I said, okay. I didn't like that, but I just sat there. Yes. You know, kind of that happened to me too. Crying. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Radiologist comes back. He, you know, my BIRAD score was super high. I mean, it was, they were like, yeah, this is probably cancer. Um, you were going to obviously send you for a biopsy. And I was like, great, but we still have to do a mammogram because of insurance purposes, even though it's very likely that it's cancer. So I had to go through the whole mammogram process. Glad I never have to do that again. Cause my gosh, mammograms are terrible. And I like so painful. <laughs> I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday. Like, I'm so glad I was a one and done mammogram participant. So for real, I'm <laughs> like, so time. glad I, yeah, I have like PTSD thinking about it. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> yeah. And so I had the biopsy like a day or two after that. It was on a Friday. I remember that because I had to wait the weekend to get my results. And they were like, oh, we're going to see you on Tuesday. And I get a call on a Monday and they're like, hey, we'd really like to see you today. Whenever uh, you can come in. Yeah. You're the VIP. Like literally this language where I'm like, fuck, I have cancer. Yeah. And the moment they called and my parents had gone to work that day because they thought, oh, you're, it was summer. So I was at my parents' house and, you know, it'll be fine. And we'll go tomorrow to the doctor. And I call them and I say, you need to come home. We need to go to the doctor. And the moment I got that call, I actually get a call from my gynecologist's office and they call me about support groups, which nothing had been official yet. I don't think there was anything like they didn't know. They just wanted to make sure I had support, I think. Yeah. But that was the moment I somehow knew. And I dropped, it was like in a movie. I tell people this all the time. Like it was in a, like I dropped the phone and I started screaming. Like I, and I, when I say I screamed, like it was a visceral reaction of what is happening. Mm -hmm. Like I literally went into some sort of fugue state of screaming and my sister was home. She's 19. And she literally was like, are you okay? Like she didn't know what to do. She's like, oh, are you, are you like, what's happening? And you know, then I calmed down and I explained what was happening. And by the time we got to the breast surgeon's office and she told me, she's like, okay, you know, you have DCIS, um, which is what they, I was initially diagnosed as. And I was really stoic. My mom's crying and I'm like, all right, so we're going to take them both. Let's do it. And she was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> but I think I had like had the, the visceral reaction prior. So I was very like, okay, put on the game face kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Like survival mode kicked in. Like, okay, exactly. now what? What's next? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And so, yeah, so I chose to have a bilateral mastectomy since I was small chested to begin with. After surgery, they got clear margins, but my lymph nodes came back as partially positive. Yeah. And so I had to do chemotherapy. So I didn't have to do radiation, but I did have to do chemotherapy. And I did go for a second opinion at Dana-Farber um, to see if like there were, I qualified for any clinical trials, all that kind of jazz. Right. And at the time, there was none because I was pretty like, I don't want to say a standard case because of my age, I wasn't, but because of the profile, right? I was ER positive, PR positive, HER2 negative. Yep. And highly of the other two, like really high of PR and PR positive. So they were kind of like, well, we're really just going to recommend ACT. So adromycin cytoxin and then Taxol. Yep. And so because it was pretty standard and there was no clinical trials for me at the time, I said, you know what? I would rather just go to my local cancer center where, because my parents were going to help care for me through treatment. And I said, you know, this will just make things really easier for me. So I'm not worrying about like commuting to Boston by myself and just being by alone really was the deal. Um, so I did that and I, again, didn't have radiation. So treatment wise, that was my main kind of deal um, in terms of initial diagnosis and active treatment. And then I was on tamoxifen for seven years. How many rounds of chemo did you do? So I did adromycin cytoxin for four rounds biweekly. And then I did tax off for 12 weeks weekly. Okay. So you did 16 rounds like, like I did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Which is again, pretty standard for like that kind of profiles, but at the same time, going into it, I had no one who had done chemotherapy. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose my hair. And then what else? And no one tells you about all the other things you have to deal with when you're going through chemotherapy, like right. the new Lassa shots. My gosh, I still remember the pain from those new Lassa shots. I hate mm -hmm. those but, so yeah. much. Oh, they're, <laughs> terrible. they're terrible. Yeah. I have a clear memory of like laying in bed and my legs just throbbing because of the bone pain. It was terrible. I like yes. feel like I lived yeah. in an Epsom salt bath, at least 12 rounds. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what stage 
were you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even say that. So it was originally DCIS, so stage zero, but then surgery with the involvement of my lymph nodes, yes. it was stage 1B Okay, mm-hmm. um, just because of the size of my tumor plus um, the lymph node involvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's incredible that you know you found it early and your doctor just said, hey, let's just get it checked. Because if he like dismissed that, then, you know, your stage could have been worse. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, and that's – it's not funny. It's actually a sad story, but I will – I distinctly remember. So my breast surgeon, after I had gotten my diagnosis, and she literally said, I'm really glad your doctor sent you for that ultrasound because other doctors would say, wait six months and come back. Mm -hmm. And she had literally had another patient who was 26, only a couple years older than myself at the time, who had just been diagnosed stage four because the doctor had told her to wait. And that happens sterilely more often than we like to believe. So that just gave me chills. Which is why I went back and like thanked my doctor because I was like, I was literally like, thank you. Because if it wasn't for you, I don't think, you know, looking back now, it's like, I wouldn't have been Aaron. And again, he was someone who I wouldn't necessarily classify someone who was like, oh, I'm going to do this and be an advocate (laughs) and young women or anything. He was just kind of a chill older male gynecologist who was really sweet, but, um, and so, yeah, really good doctor. I was really lucky in that regard. After you were diagnosed, you know, I know that (laughs) you were feeling very distraught and probably angry even, but did you do any further research or did you just slowly get your information from your doctors? Yeah. So I definitely did a lot of my own research, um, you know, different forums, different research articles, because as I said, I was in grad school. So I was that nerd who was like literally reading medical journals and coming in and being like, oh, well, this is what the research said. And they were like, wait, you read that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> and so especially early on, I think as time has gone on, done less of that. I still keep up on things, but it's 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 to a lesser degree. But early on, I really dived in deep because I was it was the way I coped, really. That's how I cope too. I, I need to know <laughs> a lot of things. And like I would ask yeah. more deeper questions just so I can kind of get a sense of like, is the oncologist or is their surgeon like saying this because that's just the protocol? Or do they really believe that in my case that this should be what it needs to be? Exactly. I just need to know everything too. Like I need to expect everything and I need to like I be like fully informed before I like go into a situation in any in anything, whether it's like cancer or anything. So I, I I'm like that as well. But it's also just like taking charge, right? Taking charge of your health. Yeah. It's a control piece. Yeah. It's a con- and I think too, where so much feels out of control. So I talked about feeling overwhelmed and all of that and angry. And I think that was my way of taking control. Well, one of the ways is okay, you know what? I can't change what's happening. But I can change, I can change the fact that I have knowledge about it and better inform myself. And to me, that was helpful. Yeah. And I like, I mean, when I was 23, I just I felt like a naive like <laughs> person at that age. And and I'm sure there's just, you know, a lot of women who probably like felt that way too. But I'm so glad that you've just mentioned that you just took action because there there should be more young women to say like, no, I don't agree with this or no, I want to get it checked out. (laughs) Something is unusual and I disagree that we should wait six months. You know, it's just, um, I think we should advocate more for sure. 
And also normalize the fact too, really quickly that it's, if my doctor had told me that day, go home, I'll see you in six months. Or if it gets worse, I would have went home peace of mind. So let's, you know, I want to normalize that too, where I think I would, cause I think I had a lot of more implicit like faith yeah. and trust in my doctors because you don't know mm-hmm. better until right. you know, right. Mm-hmm. And if you know, you know, kind of thing. And so I didn't know. And I think I would have left that day feeling okay about that. And again, now I wouldn't be that person. So, but also normalizing if you, if someone ends up being that person and then, you know, they find out something later on, like that's also like that happens and that, you know, you can't blame yourself either. What we can do is also teach doctors to be more informed that this happens in young women. Right. And so just kind of normalizing that from the patient end of things, because I think sometimes like, it's like, we can advocate for ourselves and that we should hundred percent advocate for ourselves. And then also if we don't have the tools to do so, our doctors should be the ones advocating for us. Yeah. Like you, like you said, like you went in, like that's a medical professional. That's somebody who like went to school, had got the education to kind of tell me what's going on in my body. So yeah, I would have left there peace of mind, trusting that, you know, like I did what I was supposed to do. I went, I got this checked out and for somebody to tell me, yeah, like see you in six months, I'd be like, yeah, see you in six months. And I also wanting to believe that this isn't like something so serious. So I know that you mentioned that, you know, at 23, you were starting graduate school. At that time in the financial aspect of things, were you still financially dependent on your parents or were you able to find like a job and get health insurance through your employment? Just walk us through that. Yeah. So I wouldn't say, I always tell you, I'm like, I wouldn't say I was lucky, but I'm thankful that I was in graduate school at the time because of the fact that since I was still a student under Obamacare, I was able to be insured under my parents, even though because I was a student. So like I had a part-time position, like I was like all my bills and things like I paid myself, but in terms of health insurance, that was still through my parents because I was able to have that till I was 26. It was amazing because my mom worked at the time. She's since I was a kid, she's worked in admin assistant roles in education. And so she worked at that time for a middle school and her health insurance was amazing like through the state of Connecticut. And so I didn't have the medical bills that other people are having. So like, I didn't have to go through the, like the GoFundMe or, you know, those kind of things. Um, because I felt like I was in a place where I didn't have that. Like I had, you know, I have student, I didn't, I did. And I do have student loans, but I didn't have that plus medical bills. And so I'm really thankful that I was in that place because of it. But then there's that, where's that weird transition when I turned 26 and I said, okay, now I'm on not so good graduate right. student insurance. I hope I don't get sick again over these next whatever the time period until I get employed and finish my degree. Um, I was lucky that wasn't the case, but that was a concern I had for quite some time um, during that any time I had health concerns. Yeah, of course. I mean, after like a cancer diagnosis, like you're like, uh, anything could happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well that so. and making decisions based off on like how, you know, like based off like health insurance, you know, yeah. like having to do things like, get a domestic partnership and in order like like what I did in order to get like my partner's really good health insurance and things yeah. like that. You start making those decisions. And just to kind of relate to that. So when I turned, when I finished my PhD, I was going on the job market. And at the time I was like, not sure if I was going to have a job. And so I wasn't going to have health insurance. And so my partner and I had gotten engaged. Um, him and I had gotten engaged like six months prior and we actually moved, like we got married sooner because we wanted to make sure I had health insurance. Everyone was like, oh, are you pregnant? And I'm like, no, 
I need health insurance. And he understands that and wants to make sure I'm cared for. <laughs> and so we got married a little bit earlier to ensure that I was insured. Although it worked out, I ended up getting a position where I got better health insurance shortly after that, but we didn't know that. And so we made sure I was in a place where I was always insured because that was a concern. Your husband, was he with you when you were, when you, were you guys together when you were diagnosed? No. So no. I was, um, I was in a relationship, but, um, you know, that part and I just didn't work out. And so mm-hmm. I had met him actually shortly after I had finished chemotherapy. So he had actually met me with like my hair wrap and everything. He was on an interview for, um, our PhD program and that's where we met. And then we became acquainted shortly after and probably dated like a year after that. But yeah, so I, he's known me only with my scars only. I had the note about that at some point through this, but yeah. I'll maybe bring it up later. <laughs> You know, we had a conversation, a Zoom meeting together prior to recording this episode. And you mentioned that while you were going through chemotherapy, you still continued your graduate program. Can you tell the listeners, like, how did you have the strength to continue that? For me, I really needed something to focus on. So the month between, so I was diagnosed July 30th, 2012. I had surgery August 8th. And then I was recovering from surgery. And I will tell you during that time, I just, I was like ruminating a lot, like, right. Of everything I was dealing with. And I just felt like, and I didn't have an outlet because I didn't know anyone (laughs) my age. So I really didn't have an outlet of like support in that way. And so I felt like continuing my education gave me something to focus on. It's also just very on brand for me as a person. Um, I'm very much a person who kind of goes, goes, goes. I've slowed down in more recent years as as I've reflected on the importance of rest. But, you know, when I was 23, that was not a thing I prioritized, which most 23 year olds don't. It was helpful. It was a, it was a focus point for me. And so I think the downtime was harder. And so school really gave me an outlet to focus um, because besides my family, I was really felt really alone through the experience. Did you get any like assistance from your university or college professors? Just wondering if like they, I don't know, like understood what you were going through or if you mentioned to them that you're going through chemotherapy. Yeah. So it was really interesting because my department specifically, there was actually several cancer survivors, like breast cancer survivors in that department. It was just, it was actually this like whole thing, but either way, they, there were several of them. So they were really supportive. And my, specifically my mentor, my, what we call my major professor, the person who like guided me through grad school was really supportive. You know, he actually encouraged me to take a year off and I said, no, that's not going to work for me. And he wasn't too surprised knowing who I am, but instead I scaled back. As I said, I took you know, two classes instead of like three or four. And I scaled back my teaching. So I made my schedule Tuesdays to Thursdays. So I kept my schedule really constrained where I had to be on campus. Because again, this was pre COVID time. So you weren't like the working from home thing was just not a normalized thing you were doing. And so Tuesdays to Thursdays, I would be on campus taking classes at my like grad school apartment, I would actually, because I wanted to be able to take be cared for during like after post chemo. So I would go home to Connecticut on Friday mornings, get treatment that like afternoon. Um, and then I would spend the weekend with my family and go back to school up to school on Mondays in Rhode Island, and then continue that process again and again for the 20 weeks or whatever. And so, yeah, it was a lot, but you know, 
like at first it sounded like you gave yourself grace, but then at the end it did sound like it was a lot. So did you feel like it was in between or did you have to adjust? Yeah, I think there it was hard. Like there were days where I should have been kinder to myself. Like I think in hindsight, right? Hindsight is 2020. So looking back, I'm like, wow, I don't I should have been kinder to my 23-year-old self, but I didn't really know better. And there was a time where I kind of lauded myself for saying, I never missed a class. And I look back and I'm like, that's, <laughs> yeah. you probably should have missed the class one day. It would have been okay. <laughs> Everyone would have been fine if you missed the class. But I remember because there was one day where I, I tried to stay away from caffeine during treatment. And, you know, my nurse practitioner was like, you know, if you need a coffee once in a while, it's fine, but you really should try to like minimize your caffeine intake. And I said, cool. And I remember this one day and I kind of like was like, oh, I need a latte. I'm not going to make it through this three hour class if I don't have this latte. And it was like, it tasted like liquid gold that day. Yeah. <laughs> I just like really needed it. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of it was like, I brought just like a lot of snacks and I, you know, again, we weren't mad. So I was just sitting there with like grapes or something, just trying to like stay awake. Right. And, you know, people were understanding. And I think people were actually more understanding than I think I was to myself during a lot of that. Because again, when you're young, you expect yourself to be doing a lot mm-hmm. and kind of going. And, and I was, I don't, I think I could have just been kinder to myself, but again, I, you know, better now as time goes. Yeah. On. Yeah, exactly. Did you keep your breast cancer journey private or were you open about your story with your family and friends or like people in college? When I was diagnosed, like I tried wigs and I looked ridiculous in them, friends. Like I looked like- Me too. (laughs) I think it's just because I had like, I, especially pre-chemo, like I had a really petite face, like, you know, and all of that. And I just- it did not work. Mm-hmm. And so I did the caps and I did the wraps and I did all those things because it was winter when I was going through a majority of my treatment. So I needed that. But there was no way I was hiding this pretty much. Like people were going to know something was up. And so I was pretty open about it. And I s- said to myself, it was kind of a self-conversation at the start. And I said, you're not going to be ashamed of this because you shouldn't be. And you're going to be open about it to the extent that you feel comfortable being open about it. And so you know, I did tell people, Hey, I'm going through treatment. This is what's happening. And it's really funny because, and I know this will tie into the like next piece we wanted to talk about, but you know, Instagram was like, just became a thing in 2012. And so a lot of my sharing was really on Facebook. And so of course now Facebook has those Facebook memories. And so those things will pop up where, and it's just like me, like venting about how like chemo sucks and the new last of pain and that I'm tired. And, and so I did share those things because I wanted to normalize it, especially during treatment. And it was partly because I didn't also want to have to call family or friends to like keep everyone in the loop. And, you know, I was, I didn't have the capacity for like a caring bridge or whatever, you know, sort of site thing to like update people. And so I was kind of like, you, you can check my Facebook. This is where I think about my life and (laughs) and the venting and things. And so I did, I was pretty open about it, but I also I think during treatment, I was more open than post-treatment about how difficult it was. Um, just because I think it's easy because people see you and they, they're, you're bald and you're like, yeah, this is hard. And they're like, oh yeah, it must be hard because they see you as bald. But once your hair starts to grow back and everyone's like, you're fine, must be great now. Yay. And you're like, no, that's not how this works. But Okay. And so you stop telling people because you feel like you're, especially early on, I felt like I was burdening people by bringing it up when again, I was struggling for quite some time. So there's like a, like a couple of things that you mentioned, like one, not being ashamed of 
what you're going through. And I love that, honestly. Love that because like if you don't tell that to yourself, it's just going to get even worse when you go through the process. Secondly, I mean, about post-treatment, it's so true. Like I'm currently going through that process. Shauna is going through that process where we may look fine, but honestly, like with the medication and just the post-treatment fatigue and, and all that, you went through this like sprint of surgery, chemotherapy. I know you didn't do radiation, um, but you know, just like going through all of that and then you're doctors say, okay, bye. See ya. And you're like, oh shit. Like, I don't even know how to. Yeah. You feel like you're dropped like in the ocean and they're like, yeah. okay, you're going to drown now. Right. Have fun. Like it literally feels like that. Like you're literally on this beautiful like cruise ship through treatment where you're held and supported. I literally had this like written down somewhere because I was like, that's what it feels like. Like you're on this like beautiful cruise ship of what do you need? How are you doing? What do you like all of those things? And then the moment, I mean, it's literally the moment they, they huck you overboard and they so say, figure it out. And you're like, what do I figure out? How do I live my life? You're not even giving me any sort of guidance of how do I live the rest? And that's the, the, the hard part is it's not how do I live the next 20 years of my life? How do I live the next 40, 50, 60 years of my life? Because I'm 20 something when I'm diagnosed that I hope to live. And then it's like, here's this hormone blocking med. Take it. These are the symptoms. There's not really much else we could do. Yes. Bye. And then you're like, oh my God, now I have to like manage all of the symptoms and things that come with this. And there's really like not a ton. Of there's support. not a ton of support. And then there's not enough to conversation about what those symptoms look like. Like, yeah, they talk about the hot flashes. Sure. Hot flashes, some of the like sexual dysfunction stuff or whatever. You know, like I had nausea, I had joint pain, like all these things that were not really actively discussed with me. Like, hey, this is going to happen, baby. And are these the things that could happen to you? And so I was having these pains thinking, oh my gosh, is cancer back? Was this, this? And it's like a lot of that stuff ended up being symptoms because of tamoxifen. It's the year of 2012 and you were told you had breast cancer. As an AYA, how were you able to find resources and support groups of young adult women with breast cancer, if there was any? <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the resources for me at the time largely consisted of people who didn't really look like me, whether it was in person or online. So like I think about my cancer center, youngest one there, didn't see anyone remotely my age, even if it was a different cancer. I remember specifically going to like a feel good, look better, like the event where, you know, they give you the makeup and you do the hair and like, or not the hair, but the makeup stuff. And you're like, oh, that's going to be nice. And again, youngest, like by a long shot there. Even online, you know, I, jo I joined different breast cancer forums because that's really where a lot of even Facebook groups weren't as active as they are today. Like it's, you know, it was really um, like breastcancer.org. Like there was different forums on there where you found yourself just like chatting with people late at night in these forums. And a lot of these women were much older than me. No one was really my age, but I, but they, so they, a lot of them viewed me and they, they tell me that, you know, I've connected with, I've stayed connected with a lot of them over the years where, you know, I'm kind of their like cancer daughter, but I'm not, it's not, it's not a peer, you know, it's, it's someone who I look to in a different way. 
my mom did have a friend who worked for the American Cancer Society in Connecticut. And so she connected me with another young woman who was my age when I was diagnosed. And so we did stay connected through treatment and it was nice to have that person, but you know, she was, we were young. So we were both working and like, so I was a full-time student and she was a full-time like working because she hadn't needed health insurance and trying, she was, she needed to do the GoFundMes and stuff because she needed money to pay for her bills. And so it was hard to stay connected because she was in Connecticut and I was in Rhode Island. So um, we had some connection, but it was, it was difficult to bond um, because, and also we are at different points in our treatment. So like today, I feel like you can find someone who is going through the exact same treatment plan at the exact time and doing pretty much the same things you're doing. And you can be like step, step by step together a lot of the time. And that just wasn't the case. It wasn't, but it was a good friendship to have at the time. But again, distance made it difficult. And so that was really before, you know, for many years, that was like my, the one person I had known. And then I went like many years, you know, a couple of years after that. And then, you know, I slowly started to connect to people. But at the time, when I was going in active treatment, I was in it, as we like to say in the cancer community, I really didn't have like anyone. I was pretty, I was somewhat alone. I mean, it, for the most part, especially during the day to day. You know, it wasn't someone I could text at like maybe three in the morning and say, I can't sleep. <laughs> um, it was just me. And I can't even imagine. Like in the beginning, I felt like super alone. But then gradually with Instagram and then meeting Shauna, I feel like I was able to connect more. And uh, like, you know, back in 2012, it's just, I feel like it's probably super like difficult for you to go through this journey technically like alone essentially because you were the only one in your age group even though you like you met this other person but you know you guys were just only connecting for like a short period of time but what about the long term you know exactly we had got off our initial call and i i just remember like texting rosalina and being like i cannot even imagine a being 23, because you and I are the same age. You know, like I, I was going to Rhode Island all the time. My best friend went to college, the same college you went to. And like, I remember like going there and just like, I don't want to say reckless, but like just careless. Like I just, you know, you f- you're almost like invincible. Like you're just going out and you have a good time. And everyone's like, you know, you're dating and you're like, just like, it's just like a different life. I had a different life at 23 than I do obviously now at 33, just like the, the carefreeness. And then, you know, like I remember being diagnosed and the first thing I did was hit Facebook groups and, and like did a deep dive on Instagram, trying to find like anything, like anything, you know, any type of support and like to have like none of those resources 10 years ago. Like, I, I don't know if I would have been able, I would have been able to even have gotten through that. Like, I just, I literally, I thought about you actually after that call <sighs> for like probably two hours after we had spoke. Like, I just like couldn't even, I, I think I texted, I texted Rosalina. I was like, I just like, can't, I cannot even fathom at 23 and not, and not having the resources, especially we do now. I think now. too, it's like, it was just you, it's not even, I think the resources are important. And then I also just think the models, right? Like in the sense that like, there are now people, whether they're influencers or not, like people that are now so vocal about the, the post treatment things. Like, I mean, when I'm, again, when I was in it, my head was down. Your head is down through it, right? You know, you're just you're just yeah. going day to day. You're just doing the thing because you don't really have an option. 
but it's when treatment ends and that moment like hits and you're like, okay, well, I don't look like any other 23 year old. (laughs) What is my life like now? And that was harder. I think that was when not having those types of like normalization of what it was like was what made it so hard. So for me, I think in it was, I don't want to say it was easier, but I, you know, people say this all the time, right? During treatment is always going to be easier than post-treatment. And it's true um, because when you're in it, not only are you more held by your doctors, but you are also in a space where you are consistently doing something. You're scheduling doctor's appointments, you're recovering from surgery, you're recovering from chemo, radiation, et cetera, whatever you're dealing with. But when you're not in that, you just, you have time to kind of sit and reflect and say, okay, what is my life going to look like? What does that mean for me? How has this changed everything? Like you said, you were so careless. You were so, I was. I think about myself two years prior to that, you know, when I yeah. was in my senior year of college. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're an idiot when you're that young, like you're just doing yeah. stupid things and you're having a good yeah, time. Yeah. And exactly. That's what you're supposed that, yes. to do. Right. But the moment that like that, everything changed for me. I mean, I literally, my worldview stopped and said, well, how you saw the world and how you thought your life was going to look. Absolutely. 100% yes. different. Now, look, now process that. Now, like 10 years later, <laughs> let's just say, how has the breast cancer community changed over time? Did you think social media like hugely influenced women sharing their stories online, you know, especially in young women? Yeah. I have loved seeing the transformation of that. Like I, it's beautiful watching people share their stories, myself included, like it's just sharing the real truth of that. The hard truths of that is like you said, that cancer, particularly for us that are in the AYA space is fucking traumatic. It is a trauma. Like, let's just like, and I tell people that all the time. I'm like, this is not, oh, you went through something health-wise and you're over it. No, this is a trauma that you continue to have to sit and process and deal with forever. Like it's just what it is. And it takes years of your life to process that. And it's something that will always be with you in some sort of way. Yeah. I have loved seeing that because I love the normalization of that cult. Like I'm going to say culturally, because I don't think culturally that has fully shifted, but I think the more we share our stories as AYAs, the more we will see a shift in knowledge that people have about it. Because even I've had conversations with my own family members who were like, I thought you talked about cancer a lot for like too long. I thought that was only your only identity. And I'm like, no, I just want to bring awareness to the fact that this is hard and people need to understand that this is difficult and that we need to be supportive of the people in our life. (laughs) So we have like our podcast page, but then I have my personal page where like, I wanted it to be more about me and not about cancer because Truthfully and honestly, I felt that if I talked about cancer too much, that people were just going to be, oh, here we go again, Rosalina talking about cancer. And so I just didn't want that. Or I I guess I didn't want people to think that. And social media is one lens, right? So this was literally, the reason I bring it up is because it was a recent conversation with a close family member of mine who, you know, and that we had a conversation and it wasn't like my immediate family, but it was someone, you know, who had like tangentially kind of kept up with me through mostly social media through and stuff. And so they were like, you know, I shared so much about that. And we thought that was only you. And I was like, but no, I'm like, that's one 
piece of me. And that's what I choose to share because I think it's an important messaging to share. And I think it's an important thing to normalize and share. So, you know, but I, and when I did it, there was a time where I, I did very much kind of what you did, where I had a page that I just shared about my life and I didn't share really about cancer. And, but then I realized I wasn't feeling authentic in that for me. And again, everyone has to make their choice around that, what they want to do with that. But for me, that didn't feel authentic because my world was shaken (laughs) when this happened to me at 23. Again, it's changed my whole trajectory of how I view things in my day-to-day, in my life. I'm okay with that being a part of me. There was a time where I really resisted that and I kind of denied that piece of cancer because it was, you know, other people almost wanted that for me. And I said, you know, no. And that was part of my, my processing of the trauma of saying, this is a part of me and that is okay. And that is okay. And so I have to normalize that, hey, it's okay that I have this and that I can talk about it. And then also there are all these other things about me as a person that make me wonderful, but this is also a part of me and that's okay too. Yeah. Like I know that there's like a lot of women who are still very much afraid of sharing their story online. And if there's someone out there that knows what you're going through and then went to see a doctor or like felt something unusual, they can come to you. And if they do, like, I think you just accomplished what you were trying to do in the first place of just raising awareness. Yep. I 100% agree. That ends up being the case. I don't know how much has happened to both of you because, you know, you're finished the post-treatment phase and stuff. But over the years, I mean, the number of people, young people, people that are just cancer, you know, cancer survivors, early cancer survivors, I've talked to over the years because I'm the only person that other people know as the cancer survivor in their life. So they're like, Justine, please talk to this person. And I'm like, you know, of course, I'm happy to do that. But it's nice to be a resource in that way. And I think that this whole process, it sucks. But at least I feel like in that way, I'm giving support to other people. And even like you said, there's ways to be supportive without necessarily sharing your story. And I think there's that's okay too. And everyone has, again, I always, I said this before, but everyone has to do what fits best for them because there were many years I didn't share about my story publicly in any sort of forum because I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like that made sense. I didn't, there was a lot of reasons for me to do that. And I now feel in a different place. So, you know, everyone, you know, you make those changes as time goes yeah, on too. In absolutely. I think even a, a simple, like feel it on the first post every month. Like it just, if that reminds yes. one person to do a breast exam, so, you know, it doesn't even have to be like where you're sharing every like aspect of your life and everything. Like it could just, like you said, like figuring out what it is that works for you. That's one small post every month or Anything that reminds somebody like, oh, check yourself. Like I've gotten so many messages, like random people too that follow me, like girls I went yep. to college with. Like I, I had something going on and like you made me go want to go get it checked out exactly. and I went and got it checked out and it ended up being nothing. But like, thank you. I would never have done it had I not seen that, A, this had happened to you and B, like you know, posting about it, posting about doing breast exams, doing this, doing that. So it's, yeah, like just finding what it, whatever it is that you're comfortable enough to share about it, to bring awareness is, is important. And sometimes it's just being yourself too. So, you know, I, I just, yeah. I always want to normalize the sharing of, in a way that makes sense for the person. And, you know, it's the same idea of when, you know, some people share their scars on their page and I don't, and I, you know, that that's my like mine too. And, mine, and that's yeah. where I feel comfortable mm-hmm. and that's fine. Like, right. Yeah. And so you do what feels comfortable and, but that there's ways to find that through the experience too, for folks listening, you know. 
Let's move on to your explant surgery that you had recently. You've had a double mastectomy and you had silicone implants for years. Most recently, you shared a vulnerable post on Instagram, letting your followers know that you didn't necessarily have a choice whether to go flat or continue to be in pain by keeping your silicone implants. What were the factors that helped you make that choice to go flat? It was something I thought about for a long time. I mean, Instagram was a big influence for me. Following people that were younger, not necessarily my age, but not much older than me, sharing about like living flat, living flat out loud, and that you can be beautiful while flat. It gave me a lot of confidence to do that because I was really, I hemmed and hawed about it for a long time, like over, you know, a couple years of time. I had a revision in 2019. And when I had my implant, I had a capsular contracture, my implant flipped. Basically, that was the moment where I said I was kind of a realization for me. And I said, you know, if I have another issue with my implants, I'm going to take them out and I'm probably going to go flat. But then I developed shortly after I developed lymphedema. And there were just all these different reasons for me that I said, you know, it was the lymphedema. It was the not wanting to be cut into more for me. I had, I've had a lot of surgeries, like different smaller procedures because of side effects and different things related to treatment, which, you know, won't go into the full details here. But that being said, I really just didn't want to be cut into more. I'm tired is the best way for me to say it. After 10 years, I'm tired. And that's kind of what it was for me. And so I didn't want to go under the knife again and again and again. Um, and to be honest, in the back of my mind, I always kind of think I knew this was something I would eventually do. Um, I never tattooed my chest. I never got the nipple tattoos or anything like that. And doctors would ask me, I'd go for my, you know, to see my oncologist, see my breast surgeon. And they'd say, oh, are you going to do this? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm fine with them, right? You know, the way it is right now. And I think because I knew at some point I would get rid of these implants and call it a day and call it quits. That wasn't an option given to me when I was di- initially diagnosed, but it was still a difficult de- decision when I, even when I made it thought about it for a long time. So this wasn't something where, you know, I talk about it sometimes like, you know, the, my fashion posts on Instagram now where I'm like excited about what living flat and I am, but at the same time, it wasn't easy. You know, I met my husband after cancer, as I said, so he only knew me with scars and his support also was a really big factor in that. And at the same time, it's also saying like F you to the whole patriarchal idea that I need to have breasts, because to me, that's also like, if you want to, and it's supportive for you, And for me, it was supportive for many years. So like normalizing that and then also saying, this isn't serving me anymore. This is where I'm at. And that's okay too. Love it. Love it. Can you tell the listeners what does it mean to have an explant surgery and what that entails? Because there's just so many like terminologies. Yeah, sure. So an explant surgery is where... Um, it really does d- does depend. So either a plastic surgeon or a breast surgeon, it depends on who you end up getting for the surgery um, and whether they are willing to do the surgery, which is a whole different other thing. But they'll remove the breast implant, they'll remove the capsule that's around the breast implant. Um, so that's a capsulectomy and any surrounding like scar tissue to kind of clean up that area. Now there's different types of flat closure. So there's flat closure where folks are left with dog ear, um, ears. So basically there's extra skin, the, like the, what we call the mastectomy flaps. And so sometimes folks are left with this for a couple of reasons. Sometimes they want the option to reconstruct in the future. Great. And then sometimes the, their doctor didn't listen to them when they asked for a flat closure and left it. And that's really devastating because then they have to go back for another surgery to revise that. Now, what 
I had and what I pushed for from my doctor was an aesthetic flat closure. So this is where you remove that extra skin, the mastectomy flaps, so that extra piece, and then you create a smooth or at least as smooth as possible chest surface that is flat all the way around. I originally had two scars that were here, and now I have one long scar that goes all the way underneath my armpits on both sides because to remove that extra skin. But it's one big scar. I don't have any additional kind of scars at this point besides the drain, you know, scars and stuff at this point, but those will heal. Thank you for saying that because I want the listeners to know the difference because there is a difference. If you decide to go flat and not have like any revision of like going back to implants or getting a tissue flap or any of that, just making sure that you tell your plastic surgeon, no, I want to be flat forever. Essentially, I I don't want to go back. One thing I will recommend for listeners who are even thinking that, you know, one, always happy to talk to anyone that wants to have that conversation about that. And then also a good resource is not putting on a shirt. They have a lot of resources for different surgeons that are like clear, like they are known for doing aesthetic flat closure, are willing to do it, are open to it. Because sometimes doctors near you are not necessarily open. My doctor was supportive. I was lucky for that. And I think part of it was because I had been a survivor so long. So I was able to advocate for myself in that way. But if you're someone who wants to do this directly, right, as your bilateral mastectomy too flat, sometimes that isn't as supportive, um, especially for us younger folks. And so just knowing that there's doctors out there who would be supportive is an also another, you know, or at least there's language and pictures and all these things that you can show your doctors. So that's a really good resource than not putting on a shirt because aesthetic flat closure is actually a new term in 2020. That term was official. And so that's a new um, terminology that's being used in the cancer community, particularly by doctors. Love that you mentioned that resource. We'll put it in our show notes for anyone that wants to take a look. I want to touch on the topic and the symbolism of breasts, which in our society means a symbol of beauty, femininity, motherhood, and just being desirable to our partners. Without breasts, some women feel self-conscious, unlovable, undesirable, and could play a factor in why women get breast reconstruction. But that being said, in your opinion, and like what you're currently going through, how else can a woman find her beauty and femininity? Yeah. So for me, because again, this is going to be on a spectrum depending on how feminine someone identifies. But for me, I'm quite feminine identifying. And so for me, it's been finding outfits that work for my new flat body, which is why I've been like sharing those posts and things because that's exciting for me. It's like, I feel pretty in this. And you know, those have been the enjoyable things to find. And it's been wearing things I couldn't wear with my foods because I didn't have the beautiful cleavage that some women achieve. Like I had very much a pretty decent space between mine, which some women get depending on your reconstruction and how that falls with your anatomy. There was times where like, there are certain like halter tops and things I can wear now that I would never have worn without a bra, even with no nipples, because my food would just like pop out. <laughs> like there was no, way. <laughs> and so it's been nice finding those things. But even with boobs too, it was finding things that I felt like sexy in and mm-hmm. I felt pretty in and beautiful in. For me, a lot of it was finding new clothes. It was also just, it's accentuating the other parts or noticing the other parts of your body that you love. Maybe that is your smile. Maybe that is your legs. Maybe that are, you know, that's your butt. I don't know. Whatever you feel like, what other parts of your body do you feel confident about? And really like thinking about how can I accentuate this, whether that's in clothing, whether that is just you paying more attention to that and bringing awareness to it. For me, that is how I like 
went about finding it is really those moments. It was really not about other people. <laughs> um, even my husband, like it was about myself and like, how am I feeling beautiful? How am I viewing myself and my body? And so whenever I found something I felt confident in, it was definitely, you know, by either buying multiple of that outfit <laughs> or just, mm -hmm. you know, noticing the parts of me that I really like about my body. And that can be hard because your body changes through treatment too. If you, you know, chemo with steroids, I, I gained weight. Um, it was hard to lose weight with tamoxifen. And so it was finding love for a new and very different body, not just because of the reconstruction. And then now with my explant, it's my body has changed in 10 years and I'm finding every day it's finding new love for this body that has been changed again and again and again. And it's different than I think someone who hasn't gone through something like this. But, you know, we often talk about this with women when they go through like menopause or something. Well, for us AYAs, specifically breast cancer folk, you're really dealing with this earlier and you're just processing it earlier. But it's really where can you find that love for yourself? And also maybe it is the cancer parts too. So for me, it's touching my scars, really looking at them and seeing them. For some women, that isn't the case. So I, again, normalizing that too. Like if looking at your scars is hard, that's okay. That was hard for me for a long time. So wherever that fits for you, it's but finding that is important. Thank you so much for your honesty. Rosalina and I had spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, like just trying to figure out how to live in your yeah. new body. Not only like love it, but like live it. And that's, I, that's difficult. It's, it's hard, especially I think like being new to post-treatment and in our first year of like post-treatment, it's, it's a really difficult thing. So, you know, and especially like you said, after 10 years, your body's already changed. So you have to keep doing it. And it's time, I think, too, just giving yourself yeah. time and being patient with it, too. I think that's a big factor because yeah. I think we we want to rush to get back to whatever we thought we were. And I definitely had those yeah, moments. Instant gratification. Yeah. And I had those moments and I won't act like I didn't. Like, I'm not sitting here like, oh, no, no, I definitely had those moments where I hated. I, and there's still days I'm like, I don't like this part of my body or I don't like my body right now. And for me, it's a constant conversation with myself and like, you know, this kind of thought process of reflection of how am I looking at myself and how can I do this and from a place of self-compassion? So I know that we're recording this in June, but your cancerversary is coming up next month. You're going to hit the 10-year mark. So Justine, just so you know, I've only been diagnosed for a year, so <laughs> I'm really new into this community. But you are the first AYA cancer survivor who I met that's going to be reaching their 10-year mark. And I think that's just an unbelievable, like huge milestone. You know, I feel like both Shauna and I like look up to you. Can you tell us, you know, how you feel and will you be celebrating? Yeah. So first I'm feeling a ton of emotions. Like it's a lot. <laughs> I don't know if either of you have seen the Disney movie Inside Out, but there's a whole like, and that whole ending of that film, there's like a swirling of emotions. And like, that's the whole point is you develop. I loved oh, that movie okay, so good. much. <laughs> I thought it was like the, per I'm not kidding. I thought it was the perfect way to explain like, especially emotions to kids when we, they don't yeah. understand how like big feelings and how fast things can change. I thought that movie was incredible and so underrated. Yeah. And what I like about it, just, and it's not giving away anything too big, but as we age, emotions become really complex and they become intermingled, right? You're not just experiencing one and then the other. Like you're not just experiencing anger and happiness or anger and sadness. Like these things all commingle because that's how we really experience emotions. My point that I was trying to make here was that I'm feeling a lot of everything. I'm excited. Of course I'm excited. 
but I'm really nervous. Like every day that goes by, I'm like, oh my God, okay, how am I feeling? How am I feeling? Do I feel okay? Okay. And like that, those type of questions, I'm overwhelmed a little bit because I, when I was diagnosed, um, if you were, you know, I'm sure you were given these, but you get those statistics, right? Of like what your recurrence mm-hmm. rate looks like if you do certain X, Y treatments. You, what, how likely are you, is it that you're going to be here in 10 years? Like they give you the mortality rate stuff. At least I was given that. And, and I remember that stuck out to me, like, when I was diagnosed like so strongly, I remember thinking, well, if I make it to 30, I'm going to be stoked. I made it to 30. Now I'm looking to 40 and I'm like, all right, let's go to 40. And that's all I can really do is like, I'm kind of going every 10 years, like, all right, let's make it 10 more. I hope I do. Like, I'm really hopeful about that. But I also like, it's a, it's a really, it's a lot of existentialism. Like a lot of my therapy was like processing that where it's like, well, we'll see. And you know, that's okay. I will be celebrating. Like my plan is I'm going to, you know, celebrate with my husband and with family. And even next, this coming week, I'm going on a retreat. Um, so pride retreat. Yes, um, I saw. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so just for context with the listeners, it's a retreat for breast cancer affected folks, pre-bivers, survivors, and divers. And we're all getting together. It's a small group of us, um, like 18 of us getting together and just connecting in Florida. And it's going to be really awesome. Um, we've already kind of connected virtually over the past year. And so it's going to be really exciting to be in space together and just, and I think it's a really nice way to like lead into my 10 year cancerversary because I, you know, I haven't been to a retreat in like three years because of COVID. And so I'm really excited just to be in space with people and to who get it. Yeah. I'm going to mention the pride retreat is run by Yara and we support her so much. So I'll link her Instagram in the show notes as well. So everyone knows about that. And they also run this program where like, if you sign up, you can get free coffee. Yeah. So yeah, you can sign up and get free coffee if you're a cancer, a breast cancer survivor, cancer survivor. So yeah, definitely do that. It's really cool. And the work she's doing, I mean, she's also in a like little bit past you both in terms of like post-treatment, but yep. also like in a space where very much newer to this and it's just like go hit the ground running and like doing things in the community. And I love it. I love it so much. So it's wonderful. It was a nice pick me up. I got a free cup of coffee. I think we also <laughs> did too. And it was just like, it was such a nice, like, it made my day, nice actually. Like, you don't even realize <laughs> yeah. it made my day, too. It, honestly, it's such a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Lastly, let's just get into your meditation practice. As I mentioned in the beginning to the listeners, you know, you host a weekly meditation for the breast cancer community. Why did you start this? I had practiced yoga sporadically throughout my like survivorship, throughout college and after my revision surgery, I just realized I really needed to heal from like a place of like self-compassion and kindness. And so I really began a, a yoga practice and meditation practice. And I did that for a couple of years and then realized I really wanted to share this with the community because I, you know, as I shared earlier, I'm a college professor. So teaching is kind of part of me as a person. Um, I like to teach other people and be in space yeah. in that way. And for me, yoga was just so healing for me it helped me connect to my body. It helped me remind me that I have a breath when things get overwhelming during survivorship. And so I decided to get certified as a yoga teacher. Um, and I finished that certification in May, 2021. So not, you know, about a year ago, the whole purpose of getting that training was to connect to the cancer community. Like I, that was really what I wanted. It wasn't about just like teaching other people, like again, everyone do their thing, but that's why I did it. Cause for me, it was so healing personally. I played around with how am I going to do this? I don't know. And I kind of put things out there. And then finally I said, okay, 
I'm just going to start a meditation group because anyone, whether you're in treatment, surgery, et cetera, can come to a space and engage in meditation. Like movement practice is a little bit different, right? It, it, it could, you know, there's limitations, but with meditation, anyone can join whenever. And so I said, let's just try this. So a little before Thanksgiving in November of 2021, I said, I'm just going to put it out there on Instagram. We'll see who, who shows. And I got an immense response of people just like signing, wanting to sign up and hear about it. And what's been really nice is I've had the spaces like really transformed. Like I've had several consistent attendees and a lot of repeat attendees. What really started out with me, like sharing meditation with other folks impacted by breast cancer has really become a space for folks to also check in where we check in with each other. How is your week going? And some weeks are great for people. Like they don't have much to report. And then some weeks I am struggling right now. You know, I'm dealing with pain. I'm, you know, finishing chemo. I'm doing this, whatever it may be. You know, even when I was before my surgery, like we had meditation group the Sunday before my explant surgery. And I shared all about my fears leading into that because I was nervous. I mean, even if I've had surgery before, it's really a, a cool space is what I would say. Like it's, it's the group is really open to trying different meditations, which has been fun. So we've done stuff around self-compassion, stuff like body scans and just all these different types of things. And I love guiding the space. It's been really, really supportive for me um, in this later stage of my survivorship. And I, it's been really nice to connect to people who many of them are in it or post in it. And they're like processing this stuff. And, and it's not, I wouldn't call it a support group because it's not that, but it is a space for folks to come and be in space with other people who get it. You probably make someone's day by providing that meditation weekly. There are times where you can't share what you're going through with your family members, with your friends, because you don't want to be a burden. When you offer that space to women, they feel like they could talk about it with people who get it. And I think that's just super important. And we need this type of community. We need every resource that we can get. Yeah. I feel like I, I always say the why I did that in, in the beginning is one thing I never felt through my own journey was yeah. seen. Like I just felt like no one saw me through that, the real like me, right? Of what I was dealing with. And the only people that can truly really see you are the people that get it. And even if their experiences are slightly different, they get it. They get it. And so um, I think that's really what, you know, these different resources. I mean, I, I had this thought I had meant to mention it while we were chatting, but, you know, I love the name of the podcast for you all because I, I love it. I, yeah. I literally read that. I was like too young for this shit. That's me every day, like every day. Right. And so it's, but that's, I, you know, it's like if I was a young survivor and that's the resource I would have, I wish I had had. Those are the things. And that's what I really hope to provide is like, these are the things we wish we had. And so my hope, you know, moving forward and, you know, right now it's like the best way to kind of connect to me is really on Instagram because I'm still working on like, you know, again, I only got certified about a year ago. So these are new things for me that I'm working on, but my hope, I just finished a training focused around cancer patients. So like yoga for cancer patients, both like subtle and more physical practices. And my hope is to offer more things for cancer patients in general for the in the future. Um, it's more just giving myself space and grace to do that work incrementally. But you know, the best way for folks to kind of make sure that you know they're staying up to date on that is just following me on Instagram because and staying on my email list too, which is they can access through my Instagram. You know, it's a good way to kind of stay connected and hear about what I hope to offer moving forward. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I, I love that you hooked your. 
IG and let us know where we can find you, which we'll also put in the show notes. With that being said, at the end of our episode, we just like to just ask a fun mystery question. So Shauna, take it away. What is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, that's song? an easy answer. Party in the USA by my husband. Oh, that's so funny. You didn't even <laughs> hesitate. That is definitely my go-to karaoke song. I love that song. It's, it is the song that just immediately elicits joy. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Everyone knows it. Man, man woman, everyone knows that <laughs> so song. So. It's a crowd pleaser for sure. Justine, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I I know that we became like internet friends (laughs) through Instagram, but I love that we got to know you even more. And yeah, you're just so incredible. You're so honest about your experience and so confident too. I just want to mention that as well. I know it's making me excited now for like every year that's going to pass for me. Hopefully, you know, getting to a 10 year mark, I think I'm like, I'm you've made me so excited for it. I really you all are too sweet. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me here. Like it was really nice to connect and be in space and you know, just share. It was so wild. Like I was trying to distill these 10 years. And it was really nice to do that and think about that intentionally as I approach this time. And so I just really like the timing of this with you all. It was it was it was great. The last thing I would just say is thank you so much. And the years they can be hard, but then there are also so much joy in those years. So like it's like finding the joy and also letting you yourself feel those emotions for the for those listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you all for listening and supporting our podcast. Sharing our stories with you has been incredibly healing for both of us, and we hope it helps other women in their journeys through breast cancer. Ladies, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and fellow breasties. Help us reach more women by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now on YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram at TYFTS Podcast and email us at TYFTS Podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys, so shoot us a message. We will link any resources from the episode in our show notes. 